The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we noted, we've been noting all along, starting with verse 17, and this obviously is a, a very pivotal passage for us. Okay, Others may not think it's worthy of this many pages or this much time. But it's particularly important for us because it does define, in a way, uh, our position with regard to the Torah. And so, the, the more you the more you study and read this, you just wonder how could anybody read this and come up with with the interpretation that the Torah has been done away with? How is that possible? It just it seems like one would have to do an awful lot of uh, conniving. I, I know that's a pejorative term, but somehow. How do you come up with some alternative uh, interpretation? I've read uh, several commentators who who end up essentially annulling the Torah, even though they affirm through their pages on this passage that that's not what Yeshua said he came to do. They effectively annul it because they basically say that uh, when Yeshua said, not the least of these commandments... They say, what commandments, to which commandments did he refer? And they say, these commandments refer to Yeshua's commandments, which he is about to tell us in the rest of his uh, teaching. So, then one wonders why in the world he would go to such great lengths to say the smallest stroke <laughs> and, the, and the, you know, the smallest letter, uh, since his teaching, of course, had not yet been written. So, the point that I'm making is that 17, 18, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20 all hang together. And you cannot expect to find a proper interpretation of any text of Scripture if you just take a line out of context. And this is, of course, the same is true here. So, at the bottom of page 180, I've... I've noted again the the parallels that we have. In verse 17, Yeshua said, I did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So we have the term to abolish, the term Torah and prophets and fulfill. Verse 18, he's using other descriptive terms. Uh, Not one of the smallest strokes or letters will pass away. And to, uh, to abolish something would be to cause it to pass away. Instead of saying Torah and prophets, he just sums it up as Torah. And that's because the Torah is his primary uh, point here. But the fact that he said Torah and prophets in the first, uh, in verse 17, tells us that he's not isolating the prophets or the Torah from the prophets. His point throughout this is that it all hangs together. The Torah, every part of it is integral. And if the Torah hangs together, then clearly what the prophets did must complement or agree with the Torah, or else they wouldn't be they wouldn't be accepted. They wouldn't be received. So he's entirely inclusive in the way that he views the scriptures. And then he says, until all will be accomplished, or all is accomplished, and that that answers to or is parallel to the concept of fulfill. What does it mean to annul? Uh, well, we'll talk about that, but 
Uh, he says, anyone who annuls the least of these and teaches others to do so will be least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom. And then he goes on in verse 20 and says, for I, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we take an, uh, an overview of this whole thing, where does it end? It ends in the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness is insufficient. But they have righteousness. He ascribes them to them righteousness, right? It's just insufficient righteousness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which presumes that the scribes and the Pharisees have some level of righteousness, albeit uh, insufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, is he talking about uh, that the, you have to do certain things to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't be shocked when I say yes. You know, we're so used to, and, and rightly so. I mean, salvation by faith and faith alone is the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes, especially in our day, we have become so, so accustomed to talking about salvation by faith, and by faith we mean some right thinking, some agreement with some body of truth that we have forgotten that faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. For Yeshua or for the apostles or for Moses, for that matter, to describe faith by saying these are the things that those who have faith do is no different than saying salvation is by faith. In other words, if you have true faith, it will make a difference in the way you live. And so what is the measuring stick of righteousness? And we'll talk more about this. Uh, we mean by righteousness what? Moral behavior that agrees with God's will. That's what we mean by righteousness or what Matthew means by righteousness. Now, there's another, there's another aspect of the term righteousness in the Scriptures. Paul uses it in a forensic way or in a legal way. There's a sense in which when a judge declares someone innocent or not guilty, he's declaring that person to be righteous in regard to the to the uh, charges that have been levied against him. Okay, In that sense, he's righteous on the law books. It doesn't mean that he may not have committed a crime similar to that or maybe even the crime that for which he was being charged. But as far as the law is concerned, he is righteous with regard to the charges. There's a forensic or a legal sense of righteousness. And there is a practical sense of righteousness. Not that the forensic or the legal isn't practical, but you understand what I mean. Where the rubber meets the road, we can call one... The, uh, the uh, a sense of what happens in the courts of heaven, that would be forensic righteousness. And the other, what happens when our feet hit the ground here on this earth, where the rubber meets the road, that w which we would call practical uh, righteousness. And the two are not divorced. And this is where we get in, this is where modern day theology, Christian theology has gone so far afield that the idea that one could be righteous in the courts of heaven and live like the devil on the earth. There's just no, there's no substance for that in the scriptures. And what, what, what Yeshua is telling us here is that those who are his disciples, their righteousness will surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, he's not doing that in order to scare us into being righteous. You know, you can't, you can't get scared into being righteous. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with the fear of the Lord. That is an essential part. A fear in the sense that uh, the best I can explain it was 
uh, when my father was alive, um, I grew up with this kind of sense of I would dread the day that my father would ever be disappointed in me to the point where he would you know, have to separate himself from me or, or something like that. I mean, and I can remember at college thinking to myself, uh, you know, well, I could go, go be involved in this, I could go be involved in that. And then thinking to myself, no, I can't because if I did that, my father would be gravely disappointed in me and I wouldn't want that. So there's a sense in which there, 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 that was the fear of my father, but it's a fear that's mixed with love. Some might call it respect. It's deeper than respect. It's, it's, it's a genuine fear. So the fear of the Lord is, is, is important. That's a valuable thing. All right? It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of living God. I mean, there ought to be that that uh, right fear of God. But Yeshua teaching us that no one will, co- will come into the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is not some kind of a, f- a fear trick to try to get people to live right. Okay, The reason is because you can't live right be- out of fear. Fear is not the motivation that produces righteous living. What is the proper motivation that produces righteous living? Love. Right. We don't love him because if we don't, we're going to get zapped. That's not what he says. We love him because he first loved us. When we come to recognize the love of God, that changes us. Besides that, he does an inner work in us. He really does change us. Some of us don't think he's changed us as much as we should be changed. But, but nonetheless, I mean, he is in the process of changing us. And we have been given new hearts. We do have a new perspective on what is right and what is wrong. We do have a conscience that is much, much more sensitive to uh, what pleases the Father and what doesn't please the Father. Yeah, and so, and so the, from what Paul has taught us, and what, when we see it in Paul's uh, letters, it's so clear, then when we go back and look at the rest of the Scripture, we see all kinds of examples that, that speak to this. But what Paul has told us is that what... The reason that we can no longer live in sin as a way of life is not because we're afraid that if we do, we're going to lose our relationship with God. He, does, he tells us very clearly, no, that is not why we live righteously. We live righteously because we have died and we are new. There's something that has dramatically changed with us. And so our, our living righteously is as much a proof of our salvation as is our confession of faith. You know, words are cheap, right? When everything's said and done, a lot more is said than done, is a paraphrase of Ben Franklin's uh, famous saying. You know, words are cheap, but, but actions tell the tale. Okay, So when Yeshua says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He is describing a life which has been changed from the inside out. He's describing a life in which a heart upon which the Torah has honestly been written so that one's conscience is, is, uh, is struck when actions are not in accordance with what God uh, intends. Yeah, the, the, the uh, question has been, uh, or the, the comment, that fear can be a, a motivation or a catalyst to turn people to the Lord. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, now, but you're talking about someone who's unregenerate. What I'm talking about is someone who is truly born from above, 
The motivation of one who is truly born from above to live righteously is not primarily out of fear. You know, maybe I can use this illustration. If my kids act to me as though they love me because they know if they don't, they're going to get beat up. I don't know if that's love. Okay? Love, the, 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 we love God because we have, number one, been, been uh, made, it has been made known to us how God loves us. And that is an amazing thing for us because we're quite certain God shouldn't love us. We know ourselves far too well. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that in, in, in experiencing and receiving the gift of God's love, and I'm, I know that maybe sounds uh, too broad, but I'm using that word because it fits into our context so well. In receiving the gift of God's love, He has also changed us by the Spirit whom He has shed abroad in our hearts. We really have been changed. There has been a, a metamorphosis. The old man has died. The new man has been recreated after the image of the Messiah. There is something different in us. We have died with the Messiah. And we have raised a newness of life. And therefore, we are not what we used to be. If in that life we, we were uh, carpenters, in this life we are no longer sawing boards. <laughs> we're, that's not what we're doing. Our character of life before our salvation is not what the character of life is now. We were characterized as slaves to sin then. We are now slaves to righteousness. We have a different master. We have a different perspective. We have a different purpose. And that is God's doing. And He intends to make us like His Son. That's what He intends to do. And He will not be thwarted in that purpose. We one day will stand before Him righteous, conformed to the image of His Son. That's His purpose. And what He has purchased, He is not about to lose. So <clears throat> this is the message um, and you say, well, Tim, how, what does that have to do with Matthew uh, 5, 17 through 20? It has to do with the fact that being in the kingdom of heaven is another way of saying having a place in the world to come. It's another way of saying being saved. Isn't it very interesting how Yeshua approaches this question? How many evangelists have you heard in the last 25 years? Some of you aren't maybe that old. But... Uh, how many evangelists have you heard where they go into the masses of people who are apparently unsaved and give them this message about salvation? No, it's all, it's all God has a wonderful plan for your life and all of your worries can be gone and so forth and so on. And what is the message of Yeshua? It struck me so, so squarely this week. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not the message that we generally hear today. Why is that? Have we missed have we missed an essential part of the gospel? And I think we have. And I think the reason that we have such anemic uh, influences within the, uh, the the broad very I'm talking in very broad strokes here within the broad uh, arena of Christendom is because we have many, many people who are quite certain that they have a saving relationship with God through Jesus, but who have been given a false or partial gospel and they really don't know 
the truth. Um, and that's why studying the words of Yeshua Himself in their context is so so vital for our understanding of who we are and who we are in Him. All right. So, these parallels continue to aid us in understanding our Master's words. The idea of abolishing, which He starts out with in verse 17 is to act as though it has passed away, ceased to exist, and thus to annul the effect of the commandments. Conversely, to fulfill is to live in the context of God's purpose to accomplish His will through the Torah, and thus to obey it. Literally, the Greek says, do it, and teach others to do it likewise. The logic of our Master continues straightforward. And frankly, it escapes me how anybody can miss this. Since the Torah and the prophets are the internal word of God, has He not just said that? Not one of the smallest strokes or letters will pass away as long as the heavens and the earth remain. Okay? Moreover, since, the, uh, since they're the eternal word of God, nothing of them can fail or be overturned. Moreover, since the Torah and prophets can constitute the unchanging word of the unchanging God, each part is important. Nothing is superfluous. Every word, indeed every letter is one with the whole, meaning that as God revealed His truth through the written word, all of it stands equally important. As James says in James chapter 2, if you, if you transgress one, you've transgressed them all. Why? Well, because they all hang together. So how is it, how is it that uh, we could separate them into ceremonial and civil and, uh, and moral commandments and just decide to take one set of the other? That isn't how James speaks. From this then the only logical conclusion one may reach is that for anyone to speak of the Torah and prophets otherwise, that is, as unimportant or irrelevant, is to contradict God himself. Right? I mean, the Torah, the prophets, are the direct revelation of God to us. They are the revelation of himself. To say they're unimportant is to say God is unimportant. Now, I hasten to say that we all, I think most of us, maybe all of us here in this room, we have, we, um, we have an experiential knowledge of what it is to, to have parts of the Scripture that we say, oh, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. We've all lived at certain points in our life where we said that. <laughs> and it didn't bother us in the least. We had no twinge of conscience with regard to it. I have not always been a, a, a keeper of the Sabbath. It never bothered me. Not one bit. Saturday was just a, a, a fun day where you didn't have to, usually didn't have to work and you could just do whatever you wanted to do. I literally had no idea that in the unchangeable eternal Word of God there was something that He wanted me to do with regard to the Sabbath. And, and how did I... Uh, why? <laughs> why? I was brought up in a very godly home with a, with a father who knew the Word of God and, and studied and taught it faithfully. Well, I had been taught the precepts of man. And I had accepted them as true. And uh, so, some might say, well, then you weren't to blame. Well, yeah, at first. But then eventually the Bible became my own and I was responsible to read it and do something with it. And... Uh, it wasn't until, I guess, I don't know what I, what I can attribute it to, other than the Spirit of God just opening my eyes to say, what are you going to do about that? 
And since I had taken the position that all of the Word of God is all for me for all time forever, I had no uh, option but to think seriously about this. And for me, it was, it was very uh, logical that if you pull on this thread, where will it end? If I say that the Sabbath is no longer, if one of the ten is no longer applicable to me, is irrelevant, has been annulled, has been done away with, or however you want to put it, if I say that of one, why am I not certain that we could say it of others? And just because it's reiterated in, in the apostolic scriptures, what does that mean? It was already spoken by Moses. God spoke it through Moses. If it could fall away from Moses, could it not fall away from Yeshua? It, it just it made no sense to me and it, it rattled my faith. And so... That's why I think it's worthy of our time to concentrate on these verses. They are very pivotal for our position. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, let, let me uh, let me reiterate your question as best I can. Uh, the, the point is being made that. But, but wait a minute. If by righteousness uh, it is meant uh, adherence to even the smallest of the commandments, uh, and even surpassing that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, what about those who are least in the kingdom? It appears as though that they've annulled some of these, but still they're in the kingdom. Right? I mean, that's what you're saying. Okay, let me, let me repeat that. So, um, so the point is being made that the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, as we have in verse 20, must surely be the righteousness which is given to us by faith in the Messiah, not something that we have on our own. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so the point is being made then that um, so there are those who may have this r- r- gift of righteousness by faith in, in the Messiah Yeshua who yet take the view that some of the commandments or many of the commandments at least are, are, or all of them are annulled and are no longer a requirement for the believer. And so would these be the, the group that would be the least in the kingdom, yet they are in the kingdom because their righteousness still surpasses that of, this, of the scribes and the Pharisees? Okay, uh, maybe I've, I've heard your question. Um, well, w- w- we'll get to those uh, points as we go through these pages. But um, this, is, this is my point, and that is we should not confuse Paul's use of righteousness. And I'm not saying that it's all entirely different. But Paul's use of righteousness as that which is forensic and that which is uh, reckoned to someone. Um, Or uh, what's the word that I'm I'm imputed? Uh, Imputed righteousness is not... If we look at the the word, the time that Matthew uses the word righteous, he never uses it that way. He always uses righteousness as right living. Living... Moral living in accordance with God's will. God's revealed will. That's how he uses righteousness. Now, yeah. Yes, he is using it as a condition for entering the kingdom of heaven. And I am in in full agreement with what you're saying is that no one could have that righteousness if they didn't have a faith that Yeshua is the Messiah and therefore a willingness to follow his footsteps in terms of obeying Torah. In other words, what he's going to tell us at the end of this, throughout the end of this chapter, is that the uh, the method in which he interprets Torah is, in fact, the method that we should be interpreting it by. 
And the, and the underlying principle is that love and mercy is the deciding factor in, in the manner in which we obey these commandments. We'll, we'll talk more about that. I don't want you to get nervous thinking that we're going to disregard the commandments just because we love somebody. But my earlier point is this, that when, our, when we do have genuine faith in the Messiah, it does change us. And my point has been oftentimes towards my Christian brothers and sisters that even though they don't want to admit it, they keep a lot of Torah. They keep a whole lot of Torah. And their lives are manifesting a, a, uh, uh, a conformity to the will of God. So, you know, the person that I'm talking about is the one who, you know, said, well, you know, I, you know, I grew up in the church and... You know, when I was when I was ten, I went forward and received Jesus as my Savior, and I got baptized. And you know, I, I go every once in a while, and, and and they're living with their girlfriend, living with their boyfriend, and their and their 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 life has no semblance whatsoever of righteousness. For them to think that they have this imputed righteousness and that that's enough, that they're they're deluded. They do not have this imputed righteousness because imputed righteousness, or the righteousness which comes to us by faith in the Messiah, as Paul speaks of is a righteousness which also changes us from the inside out and therefore changes the way we live. And, and in the broadest of strokes, that's what Yeshua is saying here. Okay? Secondly, I'll just remind us about this. He, Yeshua is speaking in prophetic ways here. I don't mean prophetic in terms of t- telling the future. I'm talking about the method, the manner in which a prophet speaks. A prophet speaks in very black and white. It's all or nothing. He doesn't have any shades of gray. You obey God or you hate Him. You know, that's it. That's the way the prophet spoke. Yeshua is doing the same thing. He's saying, there's one way in, and that's through your righteousness exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, He has put the mark so high that one might even think it's impossible to reach it. But that's, his, that, that, that's what He's saying. The, our goal, our, our perspective, our desire, our heart's uh, uh, hope is that our righteousness, that we would take seriously each and every part of the, of the Torah and that it would have meaning for us and that we would live it out in accordance with our love for God. That's our goal. That's where, we, that's where we're heading. And Yeshua says, that's good. It, yeah, so I'm not saying it's an either or. I'm saying it's both and. When Paul writes, for instance, in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in the Messiah, Yeshua. That is our hope and our faith. That is our assurance. That's where we. That's our anchor. That's the anchor of the soul. What Yeshua has done for me has been accredited to my account. God has declared me righteous based upon faith in Yeshua. No doubt about that. But my point is that that does change the way we live. It's not separated from that. And and if we if we recognize that Paul was the was the apostle of Yeshua. It means that his message is not other than Yeshua's message. Yeshua's message is the same. It's the other side of the coin. Paul tells us how it happens by faith in the Messiah, by what he has done. Yeshua tells us what is supposed to happen after, you know, with regard to our lives. Both are the same. Now, you say, well, does anybody keep the Torah perfectly? No, except for Yeshua did. Okay. But no one's saying keeping it perfectly. Keeping it 100% of the time. You know, 
it's a it's a little bit like I was talking about calligraphy when you're calligraphying something and and you come down to the third to the last line and you make a big mistake you know you, you just nothing nothing you do but start over right and if our life is a calligraphy page and we're thinking <laughs> you know I'm I'm taking each letter here boy if I mess up I'm gone no that's that's not what I'm saying at all because what is a what is a life of righteousness a life of righteousness is when we sin then what do we do. We confess our sins, and He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So He's not—he's not saying unless you have, you know, unless you come into the clubhouse with an 18 on your card every time, a hole in one, you're out of here. No, that's not what He's saying. But what He's saying is, is that we cannot just say, "Well, I don't care about that, and I don't care about that, and I don't care about that," or "Let's find a lawyer's way to get around this one or get around that one." The heart of the, bully, of the disciple of Yeshua is to say, if you wrote it, if, if God wrote it, I want to know it. I want to do it. Do I do it perfectly? No. I seek forgiveness. I seek repentance. I seek His, wa- His washing and cleansing of me. My humble heart is, in fact, one of the proofs that I am His disciple. You know, the, the, the story of the publican and the Pharisee, right? You know? I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And he goes, did he go away justified? No. You know, and he beats his breast and says, "Be merciful to me, a sinner." And that man went away justified. What does justified mean? It's just another word for being righteous. It's the same group word group in the Greek for being righteous. So he is declared righteous on the basis of his seeking God's forgiveness. That's clear in Yeshua's teachings, as well as as in Paul's and the rest. The emphasis that we have here, however, is that is that he does tell us that the the changed heart produces a changed life. And that's my point. And what is the perfect faith? Perfect faith is recognizing I can't do it. Right? <laughs> faith is, is saying, Lord, I'm left up to your mercies. If you don't, if you're not merciful to me, I don't have a hope. You see, th- this discussion that we're having right now is at the heart of who we are in terms of our relationship with each other and with God. And what we're talking about, I think, we are understanding this. For someone to say, I'm a believer, I'm righteous, and to know and harbor known sin in their life and not do anything about it is so incongruous. Now, we've all done that. There's always been times in our life, there, there, for all of us, I'm sure, there's been times in our lives where we have, where we have known that there's something in our spirits or something that we're doing or something that we're involved in or something we're engaged in that God doesn't like, that that He knows that I know is wrong, and yet somehow I talk myself into saying I can be both. And what, what we're learning here is no, you can't be both and it ought to scare you to death if you think you can be. That on the one hand you can be given over to God and His mercies and on the other hand engage willfully in sin and have no twins of conscience about it. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
And have you noticed how the standards change? I mean, I've noticed it in my lifetime. Of course, I'm, I'm older than, than some of you here, but not as old as some of you either. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, the, how do, by, by what criteria do we judge our, you know, our level of righteousness? And I'm using righteousness in that sense that Matthew's using it. Our lives that conform to the moral uh, demands of God, God's will. Uh, you know, we, we say, okay, you know what, man, um, it used to be, uh, you know, in the 1950s, my mom would uh, pat me on the back and say, good job that you didn't chew your gum in school today, you know. And now moms are patting their kids on the back saying, good job that you didn't blow anybody away with your gun today. You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, the, 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 the standards have gone so far that just about anybody can look pretty good. You're halfway through your parole and you haven't had any violations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, um, uh, th- this uh, Gallup poll that just came out yesterday, I think it was the day before yesterday, that said that the majority of, I think, 60-some-odd percent of, of Americans that were polled or in a random sample, sample think that it's absolutely fine to have children without being married. That they think that it's, it's uh, somewhat healthy and, and pretty much normal. And so our young people are growing up, you know, the standards of our society have slipped so far that you wonder how do you judge, you know, and that's why we come back. I'm talking about how do we judge ourselves. How do, uh, you know, we could do something even, I mean, more, more maybe a little comical. But uh, if you look at uh, swimming, uh, ladies' swimming suits in the 1930s, and 40s, and then you look at them in the 50s and the 60s, and then you look at them in the 80s and 90s, and look at them now, and you think, man, you know, what we thought was just outrageously immodest in the 1960s really looks modest today. (laughs) And uh, uh, so were they immodest in 1960? You know? Were they immodest in the 1960s? If they were, then are they still immodest today? Yeah, but why do they look so modest? Well, it's because we become anesthetized into thinking that, uh, you know, what we see in the normal workaday world is the norm, and it's not. And so we are, (laughs) we have this struggle to understand God's standards and try to apply them in a modern world and not be freaks. We're not asking each other to be freaks. We're not asking each other to be weird for just the sake of being weird. We're asking God, what do you want of us? And we're happy to give it to you. And even if it's small little things that you feel are important, I feel they're important too. You know, I mean, there are some things that I've incorporated in my life recently uh, that are very small little things. And I, I, I thought, oh, big deal. Who needs it? You know, and I, I kind of got convicted a little bit. It's nothing that, that God demanded, but it's something that is traditional and something that, you know, like saying blessings at certain times of the day and, and doing certain things. I, I, I'm not sinning if I don't do it. But I thought to myself, you know, this might be worth exploring. And to me, it, it's more of a heart of saying, you know, Lord, if it will, if it will help me, if it will draw my heart to you, then I'll do it. And I'll do my best to do it. Help me do it. Uh, I think that's the heart that Yeshua is talking about here. And clearly, by the time we get to the end of this, which we, if we ever do, um, but by the time we get to the end of verse, verse 20, I think it's beyond any doubt that he is talking about heart issues. 
Okay, it flows from the heart. And the reason I, I think that is because starting in verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 43 or whatever, 48 or whatever it is, he's talking about, you know, where does adultery begin? In your heart, right? When you lust after a woman, right? Where does murder begin? In your heart, when you hate somebody, right? Where does breaking vows begin? When you think to yourself, I can take this vow, but I won't have to keep it. It starts in your heart. That's what he's telling us. He's telling us, if you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, then wouldn't you love all of God's Word? (laughs) If you love Him with all your heart? What part of it doesn't make any sense to you? Well, then you better find what sense it makes. What part of it is irrelevant to you? It can't, no, no part can be irrelevant to you. Because it's the words of the one you love with all your heart, soul, and might. So that's the, that's the sense I'm trying to convey. You know, one of the things that the, that the sages did, that the rabbis did, and this is uh, a significant part of the oral Torah, it is a means of making the Torah manageable. What do I mean by that? When I, you know, I like checklists. We all like checklists, okay? All right. So when when you want when when you wanted to know for sure, how am I doing? You know, give me an evaluation. How do you do that with the Torah? You know. So the rabbi said, "Well, okay, here, here's how you do it. Step one, two, three, four, five. Oh, when you do these five, it's over. It's fun. You finished it. You've completed it. They made the Torah manageable. Uh, the comments being made that uh, if we if we re- uh, regulate our lives by a list of negatives." Uh, we, we have a tendency to want to see how close I can get to the line before I cross over it. But that, again, is not the heart of love for God, is it? In other words, I, if I bring it back to a family, if, uh, if I really love my father, I'm not going to see how close I can get before he has to discipline me. I want to please him. Okay, so that's what we mean by a heart that is motivated by love. All right, let, let's see if we can summarize some of these pages. All right, let, let, let me uh, summarize a, a bit of this. On page 181, what does it mean to annul? The Greek word for annul is luo, which means to loose. Or it can mean to untie, unbind, to loose. It can also mean to destroy. In terms of a commandment or law, to loose is to take away its binding character, to render it irrelevant or incapable of exacting a penalty, to wipe it from the law books. Okay? So, you know, there, used, there, there maybe still is, I don't know, but in some uh, municipalities there was a, a law that it was against the law to spit on the sidewalks. Okay? And there was a penalty attached to that. In many of the municipalities, that law has been stricken from the book. So guess what? You can go out and spit on the sidewalk, and nobody can charge you for it, and you can't be penalized for it. In that case, the law has been loosed or has been annulled. Some may argue that this is exactly what Yeshua did in his sacrificial death, that he removed the ability of the Torah to condemn sinners to meet out a penalty for disobeying it. Have you heard that before? You know, that's what Yeshua did to the Torah. He wiped it out so it can't, uh, no, so it no longer has, penal, uh, has ability to condemn. Surely it is true that the substitutionary death of our Messiah rendered those who are in him free from the condemnation of the Torah. But he did so not by annulling the Torah, but by taking upon himself the full penalty prescribed by the Torah for transgressors. Indeed, if it would have been possible for God to simply annul the Torah, then there would have been no reason for Yeshua to have died. Right? 
Instead of bearing the penalty of the Torah for his people, it could have simply been annulled. That is, the penalty could have been annulled, rendered ineffective and done away with, meaning there would have been no need for satisfying its righteous demands. If God is able to annul the Torah, then what he could have said is, hey, you know what? Uh, Torah is no longer there. You remember where I wrote the soul that sin shall die? No, that, we're erasing that. In which case then Yeshua wouldn't have had to die. Of course, why would that have been impossible to do? Because the Torah is the revelation of God's character. And God's character never changes. In fact, it is the eternal viability of the Torah, based as it is upon the unchanging nature of God himself, that requires payment for sin, and thus the death of Yeshua as our sin offering substantiates the eternal nature of the Torah rather than annuls it, for it is the Torah itself that requires death as the wages for sin. Okay, do you see... He didn't, he didn't annul the Torah and by that uh, save us from its penalty. No, what did he do? He took the penalty himself. Meaning what? The Torah was alive and viable. It had to be satisfied. Its, its condemning uh, penalty had to be satisfied. Nothing proves more the viability of the Torah than Yeshua's death. But since Yeshua has already taught that the Torah is eternal and unchangeable, his statement here is not suggesting that one can actually annul any commandment, but that in living as though it were annulled and teaching others accordingly, that person would be rendered least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, despite the efforts of some to diminish the relevance of the Torah both for themselves and for others, it remains forever the revelation of God's righteous standards. Now, what does it mean, uh, shall be called least in the kingdom? Well, guess what? God is the one doing the calling. See, when God calls something, what does that mean? That's true. Okay? Uh, you know, I can remember uh, when I was working in various uh, industries and whatever during school, uh, college and, and graduate school, uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't uncommon. Fortunately, it wasn't common, but it wasn't uncommon for somebody to just tell me to go to hell. You know? You know, they'd, they'd get upset at me or, or maybe I'd do something stupid or maybe I'd say something that they didn't like, and, and they just tell me to go to hell. Well, um, I always was grateful that their words didn't have that kind of power. You know, They could call me whatever they wanted. They could tell me to go wherever they wanted, but it didn't make a bit of difference. That's not the When God, God is the one being call, uh, doing the calling here. So the one who annuls these, God will call him least in the kingdom. Meaning what? He is least in the kingdom. It's not just that he pretends that he's least in the kingdom. He actually is. It is possible that by annul, Yeshua may be referring to the manner in which some of the sages rendered aspects of the Torah irrelevant or beyond the reach of the common man by their layers of tradition. In Mark 7, for instance, our master says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Further in the same narrative, we read Yeshua's assessment of the Pharisaic leaders, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. That's what I think he's talking about annulling. The very people that were most fastidious about keeping the Torah were in fact annulling it. How? With their traditions. With their traditions. Thus annulling a commandment may occur not only by those who entirely disregard it, but also by those who would misrepresent it or even replace it with other religious or man-made laws. A difficulty arises in trying to understand the contrast of least and great in the kingdom. And here we come to uh, the questions that were asked earlier. Is Yeshua really, this, this is a tough one, is Yeshua really saying, look, you can just 
you can just annul, you, you can pretend the commandments don't matter, but you'll still be in, you'll just be leased. That doesn't sound the way, that doesn't sound like what I hear him saying in other places, and it certainly doesn't sound like what Paul says. It's not the hearers of the Torah that will be justified, but the doers of the Torah will be justified, Romans 2.13, and, and those kinds of verses. What does he mean? Is Yeshua saying that even those who annul commandments will be received into the kingdom, though occupying a lower rank than those who do, do the commandments? It seems difficult to reckon such an understanding with verse 20 in which one's righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom. Yet we should consider the fact that the scribes and Pharisees represented two conflicting realities. On the one hand, they were clearly known for their zealous attention to the Torah and to its most minute details. That is the commendable aspect to which Yeshua refers. On the other hand, in seeking to make the Torah manageable, they instituted means by which one could be credited with keeping the Torah while in fact disregarding it. That is, through the rulings of the traditions, they set aside some of the commandments. Moreover, in doing so, they betrayed a motivation for obedience that was less than sterling, a motivation more concerned with appearance before men than before the Almighty. But this is a general fault of fallen mankind in general. It was just that the scribes and Pharisees were a very ready example for our master to use in his teaching. We should not, however, miss the primary point of our master teaching here, which is to emphasize the call to wholehearted obedience to the whole Torah motivated from a heart of love to God. He is not offering various seating assignments in the kingdom as though some will be in box seats and others in the bleachers. Those who truly desire to honor him will strive to be great in the kingdom by doing all in their power to obey even the least of the commandments. No true child of the king would set it as his goal to be least in the kingdom, right? I mean, if you're truly a child of the king, you wouldn't say, oh, least in the kingdom? That's for me. No. True sons of the kingdom love God with all their heart, soul, and might. That to which Yeshua is therefore calling his disciples is a radical obedience that flows from a heart of love to God and then to one's neighbor. He is making it clear that to be his disciple is an all or nothing proposition. If there's one thing we know about Yeshua is that he was radical. Unbelievably radical in the best sense of that term. But are there various ranks in the kingdom of heaven? Or to say it differently, will some be rewarded more than others? The answer seems to be yes though it is by no means certain that varying rewards create a difference in rank for eternity. You know, it, 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 as I was trying to think of an illustration, um, it's, it's kind of like, I, I was uh, in, in high school, I was mostly in team sports. Very, I, didn't, I did team sports. But um, because the football coach, because I loved football, the football coach made us uh, be active in sports all year round, and I didn't want to play baseball because, don't anybody get mad at me, personally I thought it was boring, okay? So... Um, uh, so I had no other option than to run track. Well, I'm not, I'm not a runner at all, but you could run track and, and stay in shape for football. Um, and, and I, I was never a starter. I never won any awards or anything. I just did it for staying in shape. But, you know, we would have these regional meets and then state meets and you would have, uh, you would have the platform, the three tier platform and the, the people would go up on the platform and one would get first and then another get second, third, you know, but the interesting thing is that when we all got on the bus and headed back to our to our home field and the locker room, everybody was back in pretty much the same level, you know. So I think that maybe kind of what I'm trying to illustrate is that sure there will be those that will have greater rewards, but ultimately in eternity in the world to come we'll all just be children of the King, you know. Uh, 
you know, you may have a few more rewards, whatever those might be. I don't know what they would be, uh, but it, it's not going to give you a higher rank than the next person. Um, several passages in Matthew may be noted. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. It sounds like the prophet has a different reward than the righteous man and so forth. That's just what it sounds like. In another place, uh, chapter 20, verse 23, he said to them, My cup you shall... My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, apparently not everybody can sit there. I don't know. I mean, that's the way it sounds. Or maybe we get to rotate in. I don't know. You know, you'll have enough days, everybody get a chance. Anyway. Uh, we may also note the mention of rewards in John's second epistle. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished but that you may receive a full reward. And in Revelation, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So there is a general sense that, that what we do here for the Lord does is rewarded in the world to come, somehow. So I, I think it's, there's, there can be greater and least in the terms of rewards. I, I think there's, that seems to be clear. I, I go on and show a couple of places in the rabbinic materials where they agree. Uh, page 184. Thus it seems most probable that Yeshua, while teaching His disciples to strive to be great in the kingdom of heaven through living out the commandments and teaching others to do the same, recognizing that there would be those who were least in the kingdom, who, though living in obedience to the weightier matters of the Torah, failed to take account of the least of the commandments as well. But by acknowledging that there would be some who, though called the least, were nonetheless bona fide members of the kingdom of heaven, Yeshua does not diminish his requirement that his disciples should strive to be great in the kingdom by being careful to obey even the least of the commandments. The fact that Yeshua can speak of the least of the commandments, uh, and so now in the next few pages I give you some examples of the rabbinic debate. Okay, and I'll, I'll just summarize that since we've, we've had a good time of discussion, which I, I like. The, the, uh, the rabbis did debate or discuss weightier and heavy and light commandments, uh, which I think is what Yeshua is talking about when he says least commandments. He means the, that which is the lightest and the weighty would be those that, that are heavier. In Matthew 23, he talks about the fact that the Pharisees there were willing to go to great lengths to maintain a light commandment, which was what? Tithing the herbs and spices, right? which are very small and from which you, you use only a small amount. Um, and in fact, the things that you didn't even plant because they grow, nat they grow wildly, especially mustard and cumin and those kinds of things. Uh, dill. <laughs> I mean, it's just everywhere you go in Israel, you're going to find it in certain, certain regions. Okay, so you don't have to work hard at it, but you're tithing it. You're going to an But then what do you do to honor your father and mother? You know, you tell them, I'm sorry, all my money is tied up in the temple. I can't help you. And Yeshua says, you should have done the weightier as well as the other. You should have done both. So there Yeshua is engaging in this dialogue of, of weightier and, and light. Now, um, there were two ways that the rabbis uh, evaluated the commandments. One was the penalty. Okay, If you got stripes, if you got uh, uh, flogged, that was a lighter than if you obviously got stoned. Okay, if you had to pay a fifth extra, that was lighter than getting than getting whipped. Okay, so they were saying the, the the light commands are those that have a light penalty, and the heavy commands are those that have a he heavy penalty. 
Well, what's the penalty for not honoring your father and mother? <laughs> oh, could be a shorter life. Okay, could be a shorter life. But there's no clear there's no clear penalty given, is there? Not like there is for adultery and other kinds of things. Okay, and yet Yeshua said that the honoring father and mother was one of the weightier uh, laws. So. There was another evaluation scheme, and the, Yeshua was not the only one to use this one. And that is, what costs us personally the most is the weightier. Okay? You see, I have never, by God's grace, I have never ha- had the urge to, to, you know, to go over to my neighbor's house and, and, and you know, uh, murder him. Uh, you know, there's been some times in various places where I've had neighbors that I, I didn't appreciate, but I never was tempted to go and take their life. Okay. So, in one way, in one sense, that would be one of those light commandments. It's like it didn't, it, it doesn't require hardly anything for me to, to observe that commandment. I have no desire to take somebody else's life. Okay, that isn't one of the things that I want to do. On the other hand, forgiving somebody who's hurt me, or sinned against me. That's also a commandment. Boy, that takes a lot of work. Loving your enemy, doing good to the one who hates you, praying for the one who's used you in a, in a, in a despising way. You have to really work at that. You have to die to yourself. You know, loving parents that aren't lovable, honoring parents that aren't honorable, those are all things that take more work. And for Yeshua, I think, he followed, the, he followed the line of reasoning, or maybe he originated it, that uh, the weightier matters are those things which require the most sacrifice of heart and soul. Those are the weightier matters of the Torah. Not that one should do either or, both and. Okay. Middle of page 185. We know that Yeshua had also come to a conclusion on laws which were light and those which were heavy, and that he agreed with those who made a law such as honoring father and mother an extremely stringent or heavy one, for it is on this very basis that he rebukes the Pharisees and admonishes them not to neglect the weightier matters of the Torah by becoming entangled in the lighter precepts. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Thus Yeshua was fully aware of and participant in the debate over the evaluation of commandments. In the end, however... The majority opinion appears to coincide with Yeshua's own position, as we read in a vote, and be heedful of a light precept as of a weighty one. In other words, you should do them both, for you know not the reward given for the precepts. With this brief look into the rabbinic material, and let me see if, let me summarize here. Um, We can see that Yeshua's strong emphasis upon doing the least of these commandments was in concert with the general teaching of the sages. The difficulty, however, was that often a disparity existed between what the sages taught and what they actually practiced. Yeshua demands doing and teaching others in that order. Right? You shall do these and teach others to do them. Likewise, his criteria for evaluating the commandments were the precepts of love and mercy. Those mitzvot that required the greatest expenditure of one's life in the service of God and others were for Yeshua the weightier matters of the Torah. Yet it was in giving attention to even the least or the lightest of the mitzvot that one's love for God was demonstrated and strengthened, which in turn prepared a person to fulfill the weightier matters of the Torah. You know the old adage, if you, if you take care of the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. It's a similar idea in the rabbinic literature. If you are careful with regard to a small precept, then you will surely be careful with regard to a large one. 
Far from negating even the least commandment, Yeshua teaches the disciples that the Torah is a unified expression of God's will and must therefore be received and obeyed as a whole. Moreover, as the following context, the so-called antithesis, makes clear, Yeshua's perspective was not to replace the Torah with his teaching, but to uncover its true import for, for, from the misinterpretations and traditions of the sages that had negated its proper application uh, in, in day-to-day living. So, uh, we've been talking about verse 20 all along, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But the, on the phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees, um, many of the scribes, the scribes were the, were the teachers, were the lawyers, were the uh, scholars of the day. They apparently were the prominent citizens of the day, according to what we read in Luke and Acts. They took over the duties that were originally given to the priests. In the demise of the priesthood under the Hasmoneans, the teaching of the Torah fell into disrepute. And the, the, the lawyers or the scribes, they were the uh, Sepharim in the Hebrew, were the ones who took up that, uh, that role and, and that responsibility. In, in uh, many cases, scribes were Pharisees. Okay? And some have even suggested that our phrase scribes and Pharisees should be understood to mean scribes who are Pharisees. And that, that may in fact be the case. Not all Pharisees were scribes, nor were all scribes Pharisees. But the majority of scribes were Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the scribes were very much uh, together. Why? Because the Pharisees considered that they argued from the text. And so uh, the scribes who held the text uh, and copied it. At first it appears that Yeshua's use of scribes and Pharisees as a benchmark for righteousness contradicts his view that they act hypocritically. However, it is not the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees with which Yeshua takes exception, but their unwillingness to live out what they teach. They don't practice what they preach. Right? He says in Matthew 23, they sit in the seat of Moses. Therefore, what they say do, just don't do what they do. Right? Because they're hypocrites. There was also the case in which the oral Torah, as Yeshua said, set aside the commandments of God. One clear case is Hillel's prose bowl, uh, uh, that isn't pro bowl, it's pros bowl, uh, ruling is uh, one of the most obvious of these. A loan against which a pros bowl has been written, that is a contract, is not canceled by the sabbatical year. This is one of the things that Hillel the elder ordained. When he saw that people refrained from lending one another money on the eve of the sabbatical year and therefore transgressed that which is written in the Torah, beware lest you harbor the base thought and so you are mean to your kinsman and give him nothing. Deuteronomy 59. Hillel ordained the prose bowl whereby the court, on behalf of the creditor, may collect unpaid debts otherwise canceled by the sabbatical year. So basically what Hillel said is this. Okay, as we come to the sabbatical year, you know, like in the sixth year, nobody wants to give anybody else a loan. Even though the Torah says, no, you, you must not hold that uh, fr- from, your, uh, from your brother. So what did Hillel do? He made a law that says, we'll make a contract that says, if you make a loan in such and such a year close to the sabbatical, you, always, you still have to repay it. The sabbatical does not wipe it out. Even though the Torah said it did. Well, you say, well, he did it for a good reason. Okay, but he said, aside the Torah of God. Thus, it was in these two ways that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was insufficient. They failed in some cases to practice what they preached, and they usurped some of the commands of the Torah in favor of their own rulings or reinterpretations. It will be Yeshua's purpose in the following context to teach clear examples 
of how the Torah had been overshadowed by the rulings of men and how it should actually be understood and obeyed by his disciples. That's his point. So, um, what is the, how is it that our righteousness will surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees? It will be when first, in humble heart, we come to God and say, I need your mercy. I cannot do it. That's faith, right? Faith is recognizing there's nothing, there is in me that is in my flesh. There dwells no good thing. I am not able. I am unable. Okay? I absolutely depend upon your mercies. That's faith. That's where it begins. And secondly is to recognize that the Word of God stands as the final judge in all matters. Man's rules may be good, may be bad, but they cannot in any way overturn or undermine what God has said. And then, and then finally, we don't find ways to say that we're obeying the Torah when in fact we're not. We don't make rules, we don't rationalize ways to say, well, you know, maybe this is what it means, maybe whatever. Uh, and finally... In this fallen world, we are always going to have times where commandments conflict. We can't do both. Two commandments come upon us in a given situation and we must choose one or the other because we cannot do both. Now, what was the motivation of the scribes and the Pharisees? The motivation of the scribes and the Pharisees was to choose that commandment which would put, would put them in the best light within the community for the, for the seeing of others. I can't do them both, okay? Which one will make me look the best? That's the one I'll do. That was what Yeshua was saying was hypocritical. And what is Yeshua's criteria when we have conflicting commandments? Mercy and love. Which one will display love? Which one will display mercy? That is the one that I will uh, perform when I'm unable to perform them both. And therefore, Yeshua looked like, like a weakling. Or he even looked at times like he was disregarding the Torah because he willingly gave in to mercy. Here is a woman who, or, or a man who needs to be healed. It's the Sabbath. Right? Well, couldn't have Yeshua waited until the next day? What is the point? Here we have two conflicting commandments. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Why should he spend one more day in pain? Here's the conflicting commandment. Honor the Sabbath. I can't do them both. At least not today I can't. If I'm going to love my neighbors myself, I'm going to reach out to him and do what I, what I can to help him. And if Yeshua would reach out to help him, Yeshua could help him. Yeshua could heal him. Right? And so what did he do? He chose in favor of mercy and love in the conflicting commandments. He does that consistently time and time and time again. And each one of these, each one of these incidences that we'll encounter in Matthew where he is accused of breaking the Sabbath, he is pushing the point of halakha based upon, halakhic decisions based upon love and mercy. And so, in this way, our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But it, all, but it means that we will, um, we will pay close attention. Okay, let me just finish with this. Because uh, maybe this will... I, I doubt... You're, you're all going to study through Matthew during the summer, right? And just really... Okay, good. All right. So, uh, it is this principle of love and mercy as the governing factor in Torah obedience that is expounded in the following context, in which the prevailing interpretations and halakha of the sages, 
introduced by You Have Heard It Said, is scrutinized by Yeshua's own understanding of the Torah, which is introduced, But I Say to You. The matter of loving one's neighbor begins in the heart and is seen in a willingness to forgive and to be forgiven. Love for one's neighbor governs the tongue and guards against Lashon Hurrah. Sexual purity, which is in the next section, begins in the heart as well and is an extension of loving one's neighbor. Fornication is always the fruit of selfishness, right? Marital fidelity, which is the next section, is the highest example of keeping one's vows. And even though the ruling authorities may offer all kinds of valid reasons for divorce, remaining faithful to one's vow takes precedence. Moreover, one's wife is one's closest neighbor, and loving one's neighbor as oneself begins first at home. Having emphasized the high importance of keeping one's marriage vow, Yeshua goes on to speak of vows in general. While many loopholes had been created by the sages to allow one to forgo the consequences of one's vow, Yeshua returns to the Torah's perspective that one should make a vow with full intention of keeping it. Again, keeping one's vow is clearly to love one's neighbor, for in breaking a vow, others are always hurt. In verse, uh, verses 38 through 42, the misuse of the legal system, the eye for the eye and tooth for a tooth, is addressed, and the rule of love for one's neighbor is affirmed as the primary criterion in community relationships. And finally, in the last section, Yeshua addresses the manner in which this central command, and that's I'm understanding to be the central command, to love one's neighbor as oneself, had been reinterpreted to include hate your enemy. Yeshua said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What do you, in other words, the way they interpreted you shall love your neighbor included you shall hate your enemy. And in doing this, they had stripped the commandment of its original importance and value. It is clear then that the manner in which the righteousness of Yeshua's disciples will surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees is a tenacious adherence to the Torah governed by a heart of love to God and to one's neighbor. Such is only possible when the Torah is written on the heart. And that is, again, brings us back to that issue of faith. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.